CLS is the weighing machine was created to help you, the financial advisor or investor, reach your long-term financial goals. Each episode, your hosts, Rusty Vanneman and I, Robin Murray, cut through the market clamor to find the time-tested principles that help investors succeed. CLS is the weighing machine is inspired by two ideas. The first is the classic investing truism attributed to Benjamin Graham, that the stock market is a voting machine in the short run and a weighing machine in the long run. In other words, emotion drives short-term market movement, but fundamentals and valuations drive returns over time. The second idea is CLS's investment methodology of risk budgeting. Represented by the scales, risk budgeting measures and manages risk to suit the needs of each investor. Welcome to CLS's The Weighing Machine. We hope you enjoy it. And as always, please let us know what you think. On the podcast today, an example of poor market timing, a major GICS change, and what to watch for this fall with our guest, CLS Senior Portfolio Manager and Director of Research, Grant Engelbart. We will also talk truth and trends in ESG investing and international investing and the emerging markets, then and now. Plus, we have an interview with CLS's Institutional Trading Manager, Kevin Slomke. Welcome to CLS's The Wang Machine. I'm Rusty Vanneman. And I'm Robin Murray. Okay, let's start with a look back at the markets. How are we doing? Good. Actually, we got some good news to report, particularly yeah. because, as you know, we love international emerging markets at CLS. But the last week, last couple weeks, have been really strong for the emerging markets as we're talking, I think, another decent relative performance day to day. So that's been the big reversal. The markets are up strong. And of course, as I like to talk about and have written about quite a bit, it the big story on returns coming up is how crazy good the 10-year annualized returns are right now. And what's happening over the next six months, we're scrolling off the deep, dark days of the bear market 10 years ago and replacing that with hopefully much better returns. And we're going to have the best 10-year stock market returns in the history of the U.S. So I think that's pretty exciting. Yeah. Okay, well, let's introduce our guest, CLS Senior Portfolio Manager and Director of Research, Grant Engelbart. Grant, welcome to CLS The Weighing Machine. Good to be here as always. And it's also really good to have him here because one other thing I like to talk about on the weighing machine, because we also like to touch touch upon the short term, the voting machine, and Grant again does collect all the sentiment data, where it's currently at and what it means for the market. So, Grant. Yeah, just kind of taking a look through asset classes. Um, if we look at sentiment in the U.S. equity market, which we have a number of different ways to track and, and a composite of that, it's, it's elevated. It's been fairly elevated this year. Um, actually linked to a previous uh, piece that I wrote in January when sentiment was at an extreme level. We're not back to those extremes, but it is elevated. Um, on the fixed income side of things, bonds have been fairly depressed from a sentiment perspective, which is positive for future returns. Um, we've seen the 10-year you know, go over 3% this week, um, and, and that's weighing a bit on on sentiment in the, in the bond market. But um, as the numbers show, you want to own things that are not liked um, and that have low levels of sentiment. Uh, one big one that we don't necessarily have a gauge of international market sentiment, just given the way uh, the, the data on those markets, but one way to look at it is with the US dollar. US dollar sentiment has been very elevated, but in the last two weeks or so has really turned over. And this is historically when the dollar does the worst, is when it's coming from an optimistic level into what we would call a neutral level. So that's something to really keep an eye on here. Um, as the dollar starts to fizzle and the rally in the dollar starts to fizzle a little bit, if that continues. 
kind of the opposite of that are commodities. And so gold, um, which tends to trade inversely to the dollar, has been at very low, and in some cases, historical uh, low level of sentiment, versus, um, w- which leads to quite a bit higher future returns. So that's something to keep an eye on. And then oil um, has actually kind of been towards the higher end of the sentiment perspective as well as we've seen those markets continue to do well this year. So that's kind of the, the quick asset class tour. All right, great. Well, Grant, you had a great piece in your weekly three that's coming out this week. Um, it was about a really poor example, just gosh awful, of market timing. You don't typically write about individual investors, but this was just too good an example of bad investing. Is that this, right? This, I just got to say, that investor, what a schmuck, really. <laughs> yeah, seriously. just the worst. I, I can't believe I just said that. I'm sorry. but <laughs> Yeah, I, I hope they don't read this piece um, because of how poor their, or their timing spouse. was. <laughs> or their family. Their mm-hmm. Yes. Um, but but there was, uh, and I'll get to that a little bit later, There's, we found a household with two particular accounts that happened to invest on January 26th, which was, it was a Friday, and it was the exact market peak this year uh, for the global equity market. Since then, um, you know, that, that was what I wrote about previously, where sentiment was really, really high. Um, the market took a really quick turn, you know, late January, early February, if you remember, and then other markets like global value stocks, emerging markets, and things like that, um, you know, just haven't recovered and have been a bit in the doldrums, uh, at least until more recently when we started to see some some of those markets perk up. So this investor, this household has a really bad performance this year just because of that, um, or on a relative basis, because of that timing. Um, and unfortunately, or fortunately, uh, that account, that household is is my own. <laughs> Wow. <laughs> Don't let Jessica read the article. <laughs> right. She doesn't so read bias, them anymore. Bias is not just for investors. <laughs> okay. So you also wrote that there are reasons. But she's going to listen to this podcast, though, so now you're busted <laughs> yeah. anyway. Yeah, I'm I'll so have sorry. to fess up. Right. Um, okay. So, Grant, you also write that there are reasons for this particular poor market timer to feel confident moving forward. So walk us through some of those positives. Yeah, and obviously I have um, a multitude of, re- of, of reasons to look into why uh, this particular investor, again, myself, should be, should be positive. And I think there's, there's three big ones that, that I found or associated with this. There could be many more. Um, but, the, but the first is, is just time. Um, I'm a bit younger. I have a lot of time for my investments to continue to grow. But that doesn't necessarily matter. The amount of time needed is, is a lot less than I think people think. And... As investors get close to retirement, they feel like they only have, oh, I'm retiring in the next two years, or I'm retiring next year. Well, most people have at least 20 more years of life in retirement, and their assets should continue to grow even as they take distributions in that phase of their life. And I I put in a chart using the World Index, so we see this a lot with the S&P 500. It's actually in a reference guide. But I use the World Index that brings in these international markets, uh, and returns are Eight, positive 80% of the time in, is in as short as a three-year time frame with an average return of 10%. So, um, and it gets better, you know, the more time that you add to your, your account. So time is on the side, on my side and, and on a lot, if not all of our investors' sides um, that are taking on equity market risk. A couple other things um, is value, value investing. It's, you know, something we've written a lot about. It's been a big theme of ours lately, um, and it can be difficult. Uh, it doesn't always, it's not always the in vogue style of investing. And, and more recently, not as much growth stocks, these FANG stocks are getting all of the attention, uh, the flows and, and the performance as of late. Um, but over a long period of time, um, and 
value really does show its stripes. And I use a kind of a, a brief simulation in the article you'll have to check out that kind of shows if you just own the worst performing asset class for the previous three years, and you looked at that every January and just reassessed and, and owned that of the major asset classes that we, we typically publish in our weekly market reviews, um, the last three years you'd be flat in your performance versus the all-country world index, which is up over 30% on a cumulative basis. But if you did that since 1990, you would have more than doubled the return of the all-country world index just by doing that you know, quasi-simple rotation strategy. So value does work. Um, there's a lot of ways to illustrate it. I try to do that a little bit differently here. Uh, and then the last thing is just the fact that I'm contributing to these accounts. A lot of investors are. A lot of investors, of course, are withdrawing as well. Um, but when we talk about investors contributing, when the market's down um, or has a bad month, I still know that, hey, there's at least a small amount of money that's going in and being invested at that market low. Um, and that can kind of help uh, settle out the, um, the, the ebbs and flows of the market, knowing that you're continuing to put money in. All right, well, let's move on from this uh, poor sap. <laughs> you also wrote about a major change happening that's probably under the radar for most investors, and this is the Global Industry Classification Standards. Um, it's adding a new sector. So why is this important to understand? Sure. So GICS, as you said, Global, um, I won't repeat, Industry Classification Standards, I guess I will, uh, is changing the sector makeup of um, what, what stocks they classify as what sectors. And they're taking the telecom or telecommunication services sector um, and, and expanding that out to include media and entertainment um, uh, companies. So telecom now is really two companies. It's Verizon and AT&T that are more than half of that, that sector. Um, and you can't even, you have to have a certain diversification thresholds to even form a fund um, to, to form a sector ETF. So you can't even form a proper sector ETF of telecom. That's just one thing in general. But the way that the, the market has evolved and you know the way we watch TV nowadays, the way we interact with others, you know, I mean, I, there's a million ways that I could describe that and we can't go into that here. Um, but it needs some kind of reclassification. And that's what's coming here. That's what's occurred last Friday, um, recording this podcast on, on a Monday. That occurred in some sector ETFs, and this will officially go into place September 28th, this coming Friday. Um, what's happening, again, as mentioned, this telecom sector is being expanded from about 2.5% of the global market to almost 8%. And names like Facebook, Google, Netflix, Comcast, Disney are all coming from the discretionary and the technology sectors to formulate this new communication services sector. It's a major change. It's going to affect historical valuations a lot. Um, it's going to affect historical returns significantly. Um, the FANG stocks are now split up between technology, discretionary, and this communication services sector. Um, so it is a big change to the market. Um, the good thing for, for CLS portfolios, there's not a big impact. Um, but the, it is, of course, something that we are keenly aware of and, and keep an eye on because it does affect how we look at sectors and, and allocate to sectors. Um, Rusty, anything to add to that? I was going to ask you a question, but you answered it before I asked it. So Great. Sounds good to me. <laughs> okay, well, let's move on to this beautiful weather that we're having, actually fall. It's uh, beautiful outside, and it's usually a great time here in Nebraska, especially um, not so great this year as Husker Football Saturdays Why are just kind of – I know, but it's just, you know, it's so associated with fall, and it's just not that fun to watch anymore. Until they win this weekend. Yeah. Yeah. 
Um, but you write that fall is also a time to watch the markets for seasonal change. What are we looking for? Thanks for bringing the Huskers up. Um, yeah. it, yes, it is. So the mar- markets, especially you're know, thinking about commodities and asset classes like that, they have a, a you know deep-seated reason to have major differences in how they perform, their prices perform around the seasons. But equity markets do have a tendency to, to show the seasonality as well. Um, it's something we, we look at, uh, you know, occasionally and, and it's something worth taking into account, especially um, as we allocate portfolios. One thing, um, October is the next month coming up, and, and a lot of times when people hear October, they start to get a little um, weary about financial markets. Uh, October has a history of of being home to some of these these large scale crashes. We saw that in September this last month when we had the the anniversary of Lehman Brothers bankruptcy. Um, you have the 1987 crash in October. Um, so this time of year actually tends to kind of make people a little bit nervous. But when you dig down into it and you look at the actual data, not just using the U.S. market or the Dow, which a lot of those studies are based on, and you look at the kind of the uh, overall global stock market in various regions, uh, October is actually positive more than 60% of the time, which is actually the third highest of any month, which to me was was pretty uh, was pretty remarkable number. And as we enter the October to December period, which is historically quite strong from a seasonal perspective, um, some of those overseas asset classes like emerging markets in particular tend to lead positive over 70% of the time uh, with returns over 6% over this time period. So something to keep in mind for investors um, you know, going into the, the final quarter of the year, which is hard to believe, but um, you know, it definitely pays to stay invested. I don't know, you know, we preach that a lot, but there's actually times of the year where it may even pay even more, so something to keep in mind. Okay. Um, well, let's turn now to our last weekly three, and that was written by Kostya Edis. Kostya is our resident expert on a new trend in investing, which is ESG. That stands for Environmental, Social, and Governance, and it refers to a growing number of, of investors who are looking for companies that promote environmental and social responsibility and ethical corporate governance. Basically, they want to put their money in companies they believe in, and it's gaining momentum, particularly among young investors. So, Rusty, first, what's important about our list, or what's important for our listeners to know about ESG? Okay, two big things before I jump into that. First of all, just on Grant stuff, his weekly three again is great. And I think that first segment on those portfolios is a classic, and it was really well done. Secondly, Koshia. He's not here, and he wrote a great weekly three as well, and I, I bet a lot of people are bummed that I'm talking about it because people really like to listen to him. But uh, he's actually off at a conf- – and first of all, people are bummed out because I don't have any movie reviews, though I did see Meg with my son this week, which I think is one of the great movies of all time. Hmm. could be up there with Citizen Kane. Um, actually not. It's about the very large shark attacking China. Oh, that <laughs> Yeah, Meg. Yeah, yeah. So uh, – um, and I haven't heard Kosha talk about it, so may not even cut made his list. Though he's seen 150 movies already this year. But anyway, Kosha is at a 529 conference, and he wears a lot of different hats. He's passionate about all of them. First of all, he does manage a lot of our institutional portfolios, or he's a lead portfolio manager on it. And he is at a conference this week in Florida. Uh, he's always a great ambassador. He always comes back with lots of notes and stuff for us, so that's great. He also, of course, is an expert on international investing. We're going to talk a little bit about that because a lot of what his weekly through was about international. But the thing he's probably most passionate about 
is ESG. Mm-hmm. And and again, so what is it? And basically, ESG, which you already mentioned, stands for Environmental, Social, and Governance. It really, those investors favor companies that exhibit positive attitudes and behavior towards the environment, towards social change, and towards corporate governance, of course. Mm-hmm. And to kind of contrast it with the market, I mean, the overall market, when you look at the S&P, the way it's sort of constructed since it's built off a market cap index, is that it essentially favors the most highly valued companies. So SG investors, from a pure investment standpoint, never mind just trying to do good for the world, but from a pure investment standpoint, they're getting better value and higher quality in their portfolios, which are factors that over time have historically uh, provided positive excess returns. So Kostya talked about some of the myths and truths of ESG investing. So let's walk through them one by one. First, a myth. Some people say ESG limits diversification benefits. Yeah, I thought this was a neat segment in his in his article as well, so the, the three myths and the three benefits. But the first one is probably one of the biggest knocks against ESG investing from an investment standpoint is that you're not getting a fully diversified portfolio. And while there's probably maybe a, a, a once upon a time there's a sliver of truth to that, it's, it's not... It's not really the case. You can build a great portfolio, fully diversified to a risk budget target, uh, just simply using ESG. And the reason why is that there's new ways to measure ESG in a security or a fund. And basically, you don't need to have a perfect score, but you can have a better than average score. So that kind of opens up the investment universe a lot because you're getting a higher quality portfolio. And the second thing is you can apply a lot of these ESG scores within sectors or industries. Again, you may have a sector industry which isn't great, but maybe some companies still do better in some way. You add it up. There's a lot of different ways to skin the cat, and um, which probably not too many ESG investors would use the expression skin the cat. <laughs> so sorry about that. But... Um, but anyway, that is a that is a myth. You can build good, solid portfolios. Okay, and what about the ability of ESG investing to drive change in companies? I think this is I it, it, the answer is yes. Uh, as ESG grows, it can be harder for companies to ignore higher ranked ESG companies as they're in demand. People want to work for companies that do good in the world. More importantly, investors want to allocate money that not only is doing good in the world, but it's going to make them money. Okay, and, and so, you know another example yeah. of that. Just think about. Uh, I'm going off recall here, but isn't like the largest uh, producer of like organic groceries like Walmart or something like that? I mean, that is it, it follows the investment dollars. Mm-hmm. So where the investment dollars go. Um, so anyway, yes, the answer is yes. yes. You can skin the cat by doing that. <laughs> okay, let's not talk about skinning the cat anymore. <laughs> Some people also argue, here's another one, that the demand for ESG is still low. Is that true? Well, d- interest is extremely high. And the in terms of investment flows, it's probably lower than a lot of people expect. First of all, you do see really big growth rates from institutional investors who can really tailor their portfolios. Um, it, the, the demand for ESG is very strong in Europe. Uh, the demand for ESG among millennials is, is also strong. Uh, you haven't necessarily seen it come through in flows, but I think that it's still going to happen. You know, And everybody talks about, like I just did, Europe, institutional, and millennials. But if you think about it, a lot of the baby boomers, they're old hippies. And this is not my original thought, but you know that's where all the money is at. And a lot of them want to do good in the world, too. So mm-hmm. I actually think that's an area that can be seriously, it can still be tapped for a lot more asset flows. Yeah. Okay, and let's run through some of the truths to ESG investing that Kostya mentioned. First, ESG can generate superior returns. Yep, we kind of already hit upon that already because of some of the factor tilts towards particularly higher quality. Um, the old style ESG investing 
which kind of had more of an exclusionary approach to building portfolios, essentially at higher costs and lower returns. But again, the new SG being inclusionary, uh, again, the companies have more favorable attributes such as the quality. And because of this quality, uh, it's able to weather market and economic downturns better than your average company. And of course, there is an argument that higher quality companies tend to avoid uh, costly lawsuits over time, another economic benefit to them. And Coaster also writes that ESG doesn't have to be costly. Nope, thanks to financial evolution and uh, benefits of ESG are combined with both smart beta and ETF. So it's just basically a lot easier and a lot cheaper for advisors to allocate clients to ESG. Okay. And one final truth on ESG is that it works best for long-term investors. And that, again, is true. Uh, it takes advantage of full market cycles, which can last many years. It's not a tactical approach. It's really a long-term investment strategy. And again, as, as I've mentioned, it's that portfolios with ESG tend to have higher quality characteristics. And again, those companies tend to outperform over time. Okay. And as you said, Kostya is also an expert on international investing, and he wrote about some evolving trends in the space. One, it's becoming easier for investors to access offshore markets. Again, it goes back to financial innovation, ETFs. So with exchange-traded funds, you can trade international exposures throughout the day on a U.S. exchange. And there's been incredibly strong growth in international ETFs. And, and you know, in, uh, within Kostya's write-up, he's talking about nearly 20% annual growth over the last decade. Mutual funds, your typical mutual funds, are closer to 3%. And there's a couple reasons for it. One, as I've mentioned again already, the evolution of ETFs, particularly with smart beta. And secondly, as you investors can get a more increasingly granular exposure. So they just don't have to buy like the world. They can actually buy individual countries or individual, uh, or they can buy regional sector exposures. So there's a lot of ways you can build a portfolio now. Okay. Finally, Costa wrote about emerging markets and how the sector has changed over the last few years. Essentially, EM and international trailed U.S. markets from the financial crisis in 2008 all the way through last year when international finally outperformed domestic. And when that switched, assets poured into emerging markets. So what are some of the reasons that investors really got excited about EM? Well, I think some of the reasons why investors got excited last year, some of the reasons why nearly all long-term investors are excited about EM, particularly if they have a value orientation, First of all, it's valuations. EM is clearly on sale, and there are some pockets of emerging markets. For instance, I was at a conference last week. I was um, I was with Rob Arnott, who we've quoted a bit on here before, and talking about valuations around the world. And you can actually isolate some parts of EM. For instance, they have a normalized earnings that's taken like earnings over a longer time period, with a price earnings ratio of seven. Uh, which is incredibly cheap. Remember, a long-term price-earning average is more like 15. When you look at the United States, that has a normalized price-earning ratio of over 30. So the relative valuation difference there is extraordinary. EM is on sale. Secondly is economic growth. Emerging market has higher growth rates than developed markets. Corporate profits are also higher in emerging markets, 25% uh, plus at the end of 2017. We have seen that kind of plateau a little bit, but the, the earnings is still incredibly strong, even with the emerging market. Market companies. And then monetary policies in the United States and other developed markets have recently raised interest rates, short-term interest rates, but on balance, EM continues to be in an easing mode. Lots of reasons like emerging markets. Right. So as you mentioned, this has kind of changed this year because performance in emerging markets has turned negative and asset flows have stalled. But Kostya reminds us that this is mainly being driven by sentiment and that all of those positive fundamentals fundamentals that you mentioned are still the same, right? It's the weighing machine versus the voting machine. So the weighing machine, again, long-term valuations of fundamentals heavily favor emerging markets. But the short-term, the voting machine, obviously EM is out of favor. And really, it's 
it's primarily driven by the narrative around the trade talks, just making people scared about international. I mean, there are some legitimate uh, geopolitical issues in some countries such as Turkey, Argentina, and Russia, but the fundamentals are still good. Valuation is still attractive. Global growth is still strong. Corporate profits remain double digits. Monetary policies continue to diverge. And, you know, within Koshia's article, he does include some charts that show those relative valuations and really why the case for EM is so compelling. It could be it could be really one of the fat pitches of many of our investing careers is looking at emerging markets relative to the rest of the world. So one final point that Koshia made was in a refresher on international diversification that he included there. He said investing in EM can assist with portfolio diversification because emerging markets basically have lower correlations with the U.S. than developed international. So what are some of the other key benefits of EM investors that they should uh, keep in mind? Well, he wrote about a lot of different things. Um, one thing he he didn't mention, which I think is important, is I think a lot of people think that if the U.S. market goes down, emerging markets, because they tend to be more, more volatile, will go down more. And that was the case in the last bear market, but it's not the case in all bear markets. And two bear markets ago, 15 years ago, emerging markets outperformed the U.S. handily. It really all depends on starting valuations. EM was expensive 10 years ago. The two bear markets go is cheap. So uh, emerging markets, if U.S. is down, will probably be down, but not nearly as much. But what Kosha wrote about is that EM countries do have unique political, financial, and economic risk, and they're uncorrelated with each other. Um, portfolios invested broadly in emerging markets do have less overall risk. Uh, the Vanguard study did show the maximum diversification benefit of 30 to 40% allocation to non-U.S. equities. And since emerging markets comprise 20% of international markets, that means approximately an 8% allocation to emerging markets is a good starting point. And we are overweight that in CLS portfolios because we like emerging markets so much. Right. Okay, well, let's turn now to our final portion portion of this podcast, which is Rusty's Q&A. This week you are talking to Kevin Zlomke, who heads the institu- institutional trading team here at CLS. What are you guys going to talk about? We're going to talk about a lot of fun stuff. It's going to be really great to have Kevin on here. And I'm going to have Grant help me with the interview as well. Um, trading ETFs is not an easy task. Kevin has been doing it for many years, and I think that a lot of advisors and a lot of listeners will want to know more about how to trade ETFs. Great. Let's go. Well, our guest today for the CLS The Weighing Machine is Kevin Zlomke, Institutional Trading Manager, and like Grant and I, a suffering Husker fan. Yes, absolutely. Are, are you still? Uh, how are you feeling? Yes, I'm feeling horrible. I know. <laughs> well, let's talk about some stuff that won't make us feel as horrible. And actually, you're head of trading here at um, for the institutional side for uh, CLS Investments. But first of all, tell us about yourself and how you came to CLS. Sure. Well, thank you for having me today. And uh, a little quick background on myself is I was born in Lincoln, Nebraska. I attended and graduated from Nebraska Westland University. So shout out to the Prairie Wolves. Yeah. Yeah. And after graduating, I actually got a job here at CLS. So I've been here for a little while. Uh, that was in August of 2004. So I've been here for a little over 14 years. Wow. Um, when I first came in, I got a job uh, on the new business team. And after about a year, I took over management of that team. I did that for about four years. Um, and then I wanted to try something new. So I came over to trading around 2010 uh, as a project manager. And Essentially, we took on all of the trading of the ETFs within our own Advisor One funds and also just kind of the sub-advisor agreement, everything outside of kind of our normal core SMA business. Um, As CLS continued to grow, that side of our business kept getting bigger and bigger, which kind of formed the institutional trading team, 
which yeah. I took over as manager of uh, about six or seven years ago. Yeah. And that's currently what I'm doing now. Wow. Okay, so quick question right here. So you've only been here for 14 years. <laughs> How has CLS changed in your own opinion? Oh, wow. Um, How many employees were here at that time? Maybe, I don't know, 50 Yeah. at most for the entire North Star organization. That is amazing. Um, that's where I knew everyone's name. Now I only know CLS. Yeah. Uh, we've really kind of blown up. Um, but it's gotten a lot bigger, a lot more institutional. Yeah. Um, and it's allowed us to really grow in what we know with ETF trading and yeah. yeah. All right. So I guess let's get down to brass tacks here. Describe sure. the trading of exchange-traded funds. So ETFs, simply put, are basket of securities like mutual funds that trade intraday like stock. Yep. Uh, but there's also a lot of differences between the two as well. Um, when we first get a trade that comes over from the portfolio management team, um, one of the first things we look at is liquidity on it. Yeah. Um, and that can be either on the screens for a secondary market, or if that's not there, you look at the underlying holdings. And that's where the primary market can come into play. So an example of some of this would be, let's say you get a brand new ETF, and it's only investing in large companies. So it's a brand new ETF, so it may not trade that much yet. So you would think, that's not liquid because it's a brand new ETF, but the underlying securities are liquid, so therefore actually it's a liquid ETF. Is correct, yeah. correct. And that's why having a great relationship with brokers uh, is imperative to being able to trade ETFs. Um, and we currently um, work with about six, and they're all authorized participants, which mean they can go in and create and redeem uh, shares with the ETF issuers. And so say we get a 100,000 share trade on a brand new ETF that 30-day average volume is only 1,500 shares. Well, the on-screen liquidity looks horrible. Um, you can't trade it. So we have to go to one of our brokers. We know the underlying are very liquid. Um, and then they can give us a quote um, and us looking at the NAV and trying to uh, work with them and just having a good relationship with them. They can go in, um, do a create uh, based off the size that we're doing and they'll show us the cost that there's costs associated with that obviously but they can give us a good price then hopefully based off that and what we'll do is also um, if we're not happy with that we can go to a different broker yeah. um, it, it's important to have i think a good rule of thumb is a minimum of three brokers um, that you have a good relationship with um, to be able to kind of keep them in competition to make sure that you're getting a good price if you had to estimate when you when you when you add it all up in terms of transaction costs, so when you think about bid ask spreads, market impact, commissions, when you add it all up, what's like a typical cost of an ETF trade? It's hardly anything when you when you add it all up. If you do it right. I mean we, we trade with some of our brokers without even paying a commission. Right. Most of our brokers right now we're trading net and that's again because we have the volume to do it. It's another advantage of using someone like us to do your trades, yeah. or if you're just an uh, independent rep, you're not going to have that volume to be able to negotiate these uh, commissions yeah. and even really get the time of day from them. Yeah. And so being able to combine all of our trades together, we can get you know, net, net commission, which is zero commission, and really our trading costs have been extremely low. We do review yeah. that uh, in our Best X committee every quarter. And we've kept getting it lower without sacrificing um, the execution as far as them maybe baking in a penny here or there. 
uh, we still hold them to that. And so we've been able to really work with these guys and, in my opinion, get great execution with very low costs. You know, I've seen various studies that, that you put out in, in meetings talking about the overall transaction costs. And I'm used to this old rule of thumb that for every 1% of portfolio turnover, it meant one basis point of cost. So a portfolio that 100% turnover would basically, that'd be like a 1% cost you didn't really see. And that was kind of an old rule of thumb for mutual funds. But we look at your uh, studies from like a Best X meeting. We'll talk about that a little bit later on. But it's it's not even close to that. It's a fraction of it. And I think part of it's because you guys got to stay on top of all of that stuff. I mean, it's something like one-fifth of, and it depends, of course, on the ETFs you're trading and, and a lot of different variables. But the costs are really a fraction of what people think they are. Right. And that's part of it's just an efficient market with the ETF trading. Um, once you get to kind of larger spreads, obviously, that blows up a little bit more. Um, but a lot, a lot of uh, um, trades that we're doing are within one to three cent spreads. And so that just really keeps that cost down. Yeah. Of course, if you go into um, a very tough ETF to trade like Nigeria, um, that's going to... Which gonna, we've owned that in some portfolios. <laughs> that's right. Uh, that's going to be a lot tougher trade, and you're going to see a little bit of those costs going up. Yeah. So. Hey, just one more quick aside here, just because I think it talks about exchange-traded funds. First of all, a lot of people say that one of the best attributes of ETFs is that it's exchange trade and you trade it like a stock over the course of a day. And there are pros and cons to that. I think there's actually probably for the typical investor, uh, typical retail investor, it's probably more cons. And just real quick, I'll, I'll say why. We did a study here at CLS a couple years ago. We looked at the Morningstar st nine style boxes. We looked at mutual funds and we looked at exchange traded funds in each of those categories for all nine of them. And overwhelmingly, the exchange traded funds outperform the mutual funds by considerable margins. There's a lot of reasons for it. Lower cost, fully invested. There's some structural reasons. So obviously, that's why we like ETFs, because dependable building blocks, better performers, and all those different reasons. But what was interesting is when you look at the actual investor experience in the exchange traded funds, is that they because it was easier for them to trade, they actually lost that, all that advantage. And actually, the typical ETF underperformed a mutual fund in that same style box. And it, actually, it's not because of the cost, but it was basically because they were chasing performance. And I think that if you included the cost in there, because you know a lot of retail investors, when they're buying an ETF, they're just doing a market order, and which we're not doing. We're working every single trade, saving every basis point we can. And you know retail investors sometimes are just getting fleeced. You see the screens. You can see like these weird prints, and somebody's getting hosed. Yeah, yeah. You should never, ever use a market order. Um, it's always a limit. Um, even our brokers, if we just ask them to work it in line, because uh, it has to get done right now, they're not going to drop it at market. Uh, they know better than that. Um, uh, but you do see that every once in a while. Uh, a mark uh, order just make the price go crazy. And yeah, and, and you think um, with ETFs been around for a while now, and people are starting to grow and understand them more. I think you see less of that, but you'd still be surprised how often you'll see that bad print, even on really liquid stuff. You know, I've seen some of our brokers will just highlight it in emails, you know, right. um, that look at this order on GDX that just went up at market. Um, so you really got to be careful, and, and it's a lot more important than I think people, people think uh, on the front end. Um, so, Kevin, just kind of along those lines, I remember when I was on the trading team uh, back, back in the day, um, you know, this was 
ETFs have grown a lot since then, just as I mentioned, and and you know the company has grown a lot since then. But um, you know we, we we used to have spreadsheet checklists of of uh, of uh, hitting our appropriate um, fund ownership requirements and things like that for the funds. So talk about a little bit about kind of the, maybe the tools you use now and how the company and how ETF trading at CLS has really grown and expanded. Sure, sure. Yeah, like you said, early on, there's a lot of uh, Excel sheets and uh, a lot of papers going around. Um, it's really grown into something different. And a lot of that is the tools and technology that we're using. Uh, we're using top-of-the-line OMS systems that allow us to uh, house our compliance rules, have the uh, PM team be able to submit it through the compliance rules and drop it into a queue for our team to look at and start working the order based on how the liquid is and just the size. And with that, with the tools that we're using, um, we have RFQ systems that we can put our brokers into competition with. We also have our direct market access uh, software where we go in and just work the order ourselves. It's a very liquid, easy trade to do. There's no reason to go and pay a commission cost to a broker or have them, as they say, bake in the penny. Uh, if we can go out, set a limit um, on the bid or ask, and let the market come to us and actually be providing liquidity to the market instead of taking it. Um, so we have that now that we never had. And just the experience over the last six to eight years of trading these and, and kind of going through um, the problems that come with with trading, we've learned and we're much better at attacking a problem now. Um, whether it's trading them individually through blocks or putting them on algos with our brokers. Um, and our PM and analyst teams have grown significantly. And the work they do on each ETF before they ever bring them to the trading team is so extensive that does a lot of our pre-trade analytics for us. It lets us know what they're holding, what country are they in. Um, are those countries open uh, during the trading day? So something in Europe, we try to get done before 1030 uh, central time um, in the morning, just so that when we submit it to the brokers, they can give you a better risk quote because they're not taking as much risk with the market being open as opposed to being closed. They have to add that risk on. That's going to be reflected in the price a little bit. You know, when it's all said and done, think about it, all these fancy tools, all these years of experience, you know, all the work that's done on a trade, setting it up, all the work done, analyzing the trade after it's been done and sort of breaking it down and figuring out what happened, the good and the bad. When it's all said and done, how, how do we measure success? How do you know if, what should investors expect from CLS trading? Well, our goal is always to achieve best execution for our clients. Yeah. Right? And what does that mean? And so always getting the best price at that time that we can yeah. and not getting hosed um, by any of the brokers um, or just not knowing what we're doing, like you're saying, and dropping a market order. Yeah. Um, we've been doing this for a long time now. Uh, we have great relationships with authorized participants that can help us through this. Uh, we talk to Caps Marcus Desk with the ETF issuers, uh, get their opinions, and we just have the tools now in place to allow us to either go out and do it ourselves, put our brokers in competition with the RFQ platforms, or just working with our relationships and having them, you know, give us advice on how to work it throughout the day, putting on an algo if we're just looking for a VWAP trade or 
or anything else that they can do to help us. Hey, so you just touched upon it a moment ago, but so you lead the best execution committee. What is that? What does that group do? Or tell us a little bit about that meeting. It's a really important one. What is- yeah, yeah. So quarterly, we um, we get together and we actually go over all of the procedures and policies uh, for trading, and we make sure that those are up to date. Uh, and if you know the markets change, we need to change our policies. Then we do that there. We also review who we're using for trading. Uh, we look at uh, uh, internal trade analytics that we've created. Uh, and we review all of the trades within our Advisor One funds. We look at the platform trades, make sure that when we're submitting trades at platforms, they're keeping up with our own composites. Um, and yeah, it's just looking over everything and making sure everything that we're doing is making sure our clients are getting the best execution on every platform. Yeah. I know it's one more meeting that has a lot, a lot of numbers to review in advance and during the meeting. Kevin, you mentioned trade analytics. You want to talk a little bit about more of kind of what goes into that and kind of the various things that we look at. And we've been doing that for a while now. We've, we're starting to get a lot of meaningful data in that system as well, aren't we? Right. Yeah, there's a, there's a lot of different uh, points to the trade analytics. Um, essentially, what we're doing is we're doing a seven-point uh, scale. Um, so we're taking T-2, T-1, the open, VWAP, the close, T plus one, T plus two. That sounds really cool. Hey, what's T one minus one and T minus two? So trade date minus one, trade date minus two. Two days, one two day, days, two days. Right? Yeah. And VWAP right. stands for uh, volume weighted average, average price. price. Yeah, I right. was trying to think about it still. <laughs> <laughs> it just rolls off the tongue. VWAP. Yeah. <laughs> but we do so execution side and timing side, right? Right. So, and so we look at the it. execution of it, and we also look at the timing, so that. We look at, okay, did we go into this at a bad time instead of maybe waiting uh, or picking a different ETF that was a better execution? We have a little less control on, uh, but we still want to keep our brokers or our procedures up to date on how to do that better. Um, So we're always trying to revamp that, always trying to look for better ways um, to do that. And I think, too, from some of the data that we've gathered out of that, I mean, you can parse that data in a million ways what how does who trades the best in the first two hours of the day you know uh, there's a million different ways to look at it. i know we've started we've made some decisions from the data that we have gained over the, the last several years just as far as um you know what brokers we use when we don't how we kind of approach trading where we you know trading certain things at certain times of the day i know that we, a lot has come out of that Right. Yeah. We've looked at, you know, time of day we're trading. Uh, one of the r- rules of thumb is to always avoid the first 30 and first 30 minutes and the last 30 minutes of trading day, just because the volatility is so high. And we've seen that in our actual, uh, that's everybody, analytics. not just for us, but for that's any for, investor, that's for ETFs, any investor. Yeah. Right. And, uh, we've seen that on our own trade analytics to kind of confirm that, um, we break it down from asset class. We break down the broker. Uh, we break it down a, a lot of different ways to try to, to, again, reinvent our procedures so that we know that we're going at it the right way. To always get better. Yep. Well, great. Well, I think I'm pretty much tapped on a question. Grant, anything else? How are the uh, Dolphins going to be this year? Oh, they're 3-0 right and now. And why, why do you like the Dolphins? <laughs> More just... raised than Lincoln, Nebraska. <laughs> <laughs> I just uh, love Dan Marino growing up, and it's just stuck. So Got it. Wow. Big Dolphins fan. Well, there no you fans. go. You're basically 500 on the season. You got one 0 and three, and one three and 0 yep. on your roster. Yeah. So <laughs> you're doing, you're doing well. They're saving me this year. Well, thanks, Kevin, for coming on the weighing machine. Okay, thank you. Yeah. 
All right, well, that's going to do it. Rusty, do you want to end on some? Yeah, I have thoughts? something else I want to say. Go for it. Stay balanced. Yeah. All right. Okay, we'll be back in a couple of weeks. Thanks for listening to CLS is the Weighing Machine. Thank you for your time and trust in CLS Investments. CLS is the Weighing Machine is hosted by Rusty Vanneman, Chief Investment Officer at CLS Investments, and me, Robin Murray, freelance writer and editor. If you have questions or feedback about our podcast today, please send us a note at rusty.vanneman at clsinvest.com.